Hey everyone. So today's episode is extremely important. It's also difficult to listen to. So we just want to advise and give you a warning. If you're sensitive to content that includes depictions of abuses against children, please be advised. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. He told me over and over and over that I was daddy's little girl. So whatever made him happy, that made me happy. So when he laughed at his own cartoons, even though I didn't fully understand it, I laughed too. And then when I got older, I started realizing that these cartoons were, you know, they were bad. I mean, but that was her whole life. I I was surrounded by porn and I thought it was just normal. I used to take Hustler magazine to school and people would like look at me and say, there's Chester's daughter. She's so amazing because her father is Chester the molester. And it wasn't until I heard, overheard somebody in gym class talking about their uncle molested him. And I was like, ah, what's that? I didn't even know. And they told me and I realized it was happening to me. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm here with Alexis Linkletter. And Alexis is sitting in our new and improved office right now. We just painted our walls black. We're getting ready for some video content. I swear to God, it's coming sometime soon. We just got some neon signs delivered. We're really excited about our electricians coming to hide the wires in the cords because Jack has an aversion to them. It's looking really good in here. We can't wait for all of you to see it. We're so excited. And like I said, we're going to start doing some video content, especially on our Patreon. I swear to God, it's coming soon. We're working out the kinks. So go join our Patreon if you haven't, because we also have four episodes bonus a month. So if you don't have anything to listen to and you want more first degree content, that's where to find it. That's right. Uh, Do you want to know what date is today? Please tell me. So today is November 9th, and it is National Chaos Never Dies Day. (laughs) Well, that's the truth. Just turn on the news. I know. Whatever that means in your life is what it means. The chaos in my brain certainly never dies. The chaos is forever. Um, It's also Carl Sagan Day and go to an art museum today day. So if you're free and not doing anything on this lovely Wednesday, go visit your uh, local art museum. Or read about Sagan. Yeah. Whatever excites you. Unfortunately, there's no food days today, which kind of is the point of doing these days. But we'll get what we can. That's right. All right. Well, I think that that is enough of that. So let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety because this could be you. As people who are forever intertwined with each other in the outside world, we're constantly learning new things and the truth behind institutions we thought we understood. Hustler Magazine, for example, it seemed cut and dry. It's adult content, it's porn, it's brazen, and it's bold. And it is what it is. Some people enjoy Hustler's content and some don't. But the thing is, Hustler is a global brand with a colorful history, which was founded and helmed by a bombastic man named Larry Flint. He grew up, in his own words, as a destitute hillbilly in a small rural town with dirt roads and more chickens than people. But in his adulthood, Flint ran a multi-million dollar porn empire, strip clubs, adult toy shops, and of course, Hustler magazine. Journalists dubbed Flint the Sultan of Smut, a pioneer pornographer, and even the founding father of our new pornocopia. But Flint also became the unexpected spokesperson for the constitutional right to freedom of speech, as was highlighted in the 1996 movie The People vs. Larry Flint, starring Woody Harrelson. Flint famously said, If the First Amendment will protect a scumbag like me, then it will protect all of you, because I'm the worst. And in many ways, Flint was the worst. 
He worked diligently to protect his constitutional right to portray women being raped, decapitated, chopped up in meat grinders, and to publish cartoons about child molestation. Yeah, you heard that right. For 24 years, Hustler Magazine published a cartoon entitled Chester the Molester. If that phrase sounds familiar, or if you've ever heard a creepy guy described that way, well, that's why. It turns out the story behind Chester the Molester is frankly beyond comprehension, and you're going to learn all about it today. So today's case begins in 1984. That summer, Prince released Purple Rain, which we all know and love, featuring the iconic song When Doves Cry. Blockbuster films Ghostbusters and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom led the box offices, while Gremlins and the Karate Kid trailed closely behind. And Apple actually aired their mind-bending sci-fi commercial for its first Macintosh computer during the halftime of the Super Bowl 18. The commercial was based on George Orwell's dystopian novel 1984, and it was so successful that it started the Super Bowl halftime commercial industry that we all know today. And astronaut Bruce McCandles made history when he completed the world's first untethered spacewalk, which sounds fucking terrifying. Terrifying. The setting for today's case is Los Angeles, a city that really needs no introduction. But for fun, we'll tell you that the highly populated metropolis we know today was born in 1881 when the Southern Pacific Railroad completed its cross-country track in Los Angeles. In the 1900s, the Hollywood movie industry made L.A. famous, and the expanding oil, real estate, and aircraft business made L.A. rich. People from all over the country flocked to Los Angeles for its temperate weather, beautiful scenery, and endless job opportunities. Today, L.A. is known for its dense traffic, high cost of living, and status as the entertainment capital of the world. Jack and I also call L.A. home, and it's a love-hate relationship. And our first degree for today's case is named Allison. And although Allison would end up in Los Angeles, she was originally from the East Coast. She spent most of her childhood in South Carolina living with her mom, who was extremely abusive. Allison's mother cut her hair against her will, locked her in closets, verbally berated her, and beat her with belts, shoes, hairbrushes, and coat hangers. For a long time, Allison's father wasn't in the picture because he'd left her mother when she was only a few months old. Over the years, Allison and her father had visited, but he wasn't a consistent presence in her life. But when she was 13 years old, her father realized that she was being so horribly mistreated by her mother. So he went to court, gained sole custody of Allison, and took her to his home in Los Angeles. And on July 4th, 1984, Allison was kind of experiencing her own kind of Independence Day, since it was the first time that she'd been free from her abusive mother's clutches. And it seems like a fairy tale for Allison. A knight in shining armor, Allison's long-lost father had saved his beloved little girl from this terrible mother. And at first, that's what Allison thought as well. I'm from South Carolina, and I lived with my mother. She would beat me with whatever was near. My stepfather would, too. She, like, did things like cut off all my hair. She stuck scissors to my neck to get me to put an outfit on. She was just really explosive and really scary, and I became rebellious as a result. And I didn't listen to her. She was like mommy dearest, except without the money. And she physically and emotionally abused me along with my stepfather. My father came into the Bible Belt of South Carolina and got custody of me when I was 13. His name was Dwayne. He was called either Dwayne or by his last name, Tinsley. He was famous back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. As excited as Allison was to move in with her father, she had no idea how her life was about to change forever. Because Allison's dad wasn't your typical father. He was Dwayne Tinsley. And if you don't understand the full importance of that now, stay tuned, because we'll explain all of it. Beverly Dwayne Tinsley was born on December 31st, 1945, in Richmond, Virginia. From a very young age, he hated the name Beverly, so he flipped his names, going by Dwayne B. Tinsley instead. Growing up, Dwayne's family was poor and struggled with substance abuse. His father was an unemployed alcoholic, and his mother was employed as a hairdresser, but also an alcoholic. Dwayne had one brother who became an alcoholic, but died from a heroin overdose when he was trying to stop drinking alcohol. And when Dwayne's parents got divorced, his mother married his new stepfather, who was, you guessed it, an alcoholic. Unsurprisingly, Dwayne would struggle with alcoholism and drug abuse throughout his life also. 
So clearly, Dwayne didn't have the proper family support to succeed, and at age 13, he went to live with his grandparents. But by that point, the damage had already been done. Over the next six years, Dwayne was arrested at least 12 times. He dropped out of high school when he was 17 years old, and soon after, he was homeless and a drug addict. To buy drugs, Dwayne would do sex work, he would commit petty theft, and rob houses. In November of 1965, 19-year-old Dwayne and his friend were walking down a street. They'd just finished breaking into a house, they stole a bunch of valuables, and they were shoving them into a large suitcase. When a police officer stopped them, Dwayne and his friend tried to make a run for it. But the police officer shot Dwayne in the ankle, so he didn't really get that far. At his trial on March 11th of 1966, Dwayne was sentenced to six years in prison. And Dwayne did pretty well in prison. He read a ton of books, he started practicing his art, and he earned his GED. He had a brief setback where he was given 15 months of solitary confinement because he was suspected of organizing an inmate riot, but otherwise, it was an okay experience as far as prison goes. And when 23-year-old Dwayne was released from prison, he immediately fell in love with 23-year-old Beverly Jean Cooper, who was a beautiful secretary for a law firm. The young couple married on June 20th of 69 in Richmond, Virginia. Not long after, our first-degree Allison was born. And after rushing to get married, Dwayne and Beverly were horrified to find out that they actually did not like each other. What started out as a passion between the two quickly became hatred. Dwayne claimed Beverly was unstable and belittling and violent. And this is probably true since Allison also recalls her mother in the exact same way. But Beverly wasn't a fan of Dwayne's either. In interviews, she said that Dwayne was an absent father. Sometimes he would leave Beverly and newborn Allison alone for multiple weeks. He struggled to keep a steady job and usually couldn't help Beverly pay rent. In the early 70s, Dwayne was working as a door-to-door encyclopedia salesman when he began cheating on Beverly with another encyclopedia saleswoman, 19-year-old Susan Gale Kestner. And in the beginning, Susan had no clue Dwayne had a wife or a daughter. In fact, Dwayne didn't tell Susan about Beverly and Allison until they'd been dating for three months. Can you imagine your boyfriend of several months being like, hey, forgot to mention, I'm married and have a kid and have a completely separate double life. Shout out to social media, Google, and the internet as a whole for stopping unfaithful men from leading double lives all over the world. Anyways, Dwayne divorced Beverly to be with Susan. And the court ordered Dwayne to pay Beverly $125 a month in child support, which would be about $800 today. But Dwayne vanished into thin air, leaving Beverly and baby Allison with nothing. So, of course, Dwayne didn't literally vanish. He and his new girlfriend, Susan, had just moved to Atlanta, Georgia. Dwayne wouldn't see Allison for five years. And this was until an organization that specializes in tracking down neglectful parents forced him to make child support payments in 1977. But that wouldn't be for a while. It's now 1972, and after a stint in prison, Dwayne was determined to become a successful cartoonist. But not just any cartoonist. An adult cartoonist for porn and fetish magazines. And unsurprisingly, finding work selling cartoons in dirty mags was surprisingly difficult for him. Dwayne could sell a comic strip here and there, but never enough to pay his bills. And after only a few months in Atlanta, Dwayne and Susan were really struggling. In a last-ditch effort, they packed up and moved to L.A. And Dwayne and Susan lived out of their car, and they sold their blood for grocery money. And one day, a well-known agent in the porn and fetish magazine business noticed Dwayne's work. With the agent's help, Dwayne made his first submission to Hustler magazine. Dwayne loved Hustler's hell-bent, kick-ass attitude and how it thumbed its nose at self-righteousness. Right. And as it turns out, Hustler loved Dwayne and Dwayne's work. So for those of you who are unfamiliar, Hustler is a porn magazine that prides itself on being shocking, immoral, and downright disgusting. And that isn't our personal commentary. Hustler wanted to disturb and unsettle its readers. More than Playboy, more than Penthouse, reading Hustler was the porn equivalent of watching a car crash. You know, you shouldn't look, but it's really hard not to. For example, in August of 76, their cover featured a decapitated woman's head packaged in a gift box. The caption said, giving head. A year later, August of 77, the cover that month was captioned, first time ever scratch and sniff centerfold, paired with a photo of a woman's manicured hand covering her vagina. And in June of 78, a quote from Hustler's owner, Larry Flint, was on the cover. It said, we will no longer hang women up like pieces of meat. Next to the quote is a naked woman being fed into a meat grinder. And that's not to mention the many, many cover photos of women who are purposefully dressed and pose as if they were underage girls. 
And if that isn't crazy enough, Hustler's origin story might be even more so. In 1974, 32-year-old Larry Flint owned several strip clubs, and he wanted to create a monthly newsletter to advertise them. That newsletter evolved into Hustler magazine. But Hustler wasn't an immediate success. Big names like Playboy and Penthouse had already been on the stands for decades. The porn magazine market seemed to be too full for Hustler to do well at all. So Hustler's big break happened later in the year in 1975 when they gained international attention for publishing nude photos of Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. Yeah, that's right. Naked pictures of the former first lady of the U.S., Jackie Kennedy. But Jackie hadn't posed for those photos willingly. Paparazzi had snapped some shots of her sunbathing nude on a Greek beach. Larry Flint bought the pictures for $18,000, which would be $100,000 today. And on the day Jackie's Hustler magazine was published, over a million copies were sold. And Hustler became an overnight success. And side note about those Jackie Onassis pictures, it was kind of the first revenge porn because it turns out her husband, who she was having problems with, had actually arranged for the paparazzi to take those photos. So she was completely sabotaged. And then Larry Flint ran them in the magazine. So, and this was back before naked pictures were being leaked. I'm sure this was completely devastating to this woman. Yeah. It was a class act. You know, she was bathing on a beach in Europe. Totally, Privately. totally <laughs> violated. Exactly. That's disgusting. Either way, by the time Allison moved to Los Angeles to be with her father, he'd become a world-famous cartoonist for Hustler. And Dwayne's most noteworthy contribution to Hustler was his reoccurring character, this cartoon strip called Chester the Molester. Just like it sounds. Chester the Molester was about a perverted old man in his constant attempts to trick young girls into having sex with him. One cartoon features a little girl in a dress trying to go down the slide on a playground, while Chester waits at the bottom with his face at the bottom of the slide with his mouth open and his tongue hanging out. Another strip shows children searching for eggs on an Easter hunt. Chester is dressed like an Easter bunny, but his testicles are exposed, and he has them you know, painted like eggs. So he wants the children to find them. You know, that's sort of the implication there. And yet another shows Chester and a very young girl getting a hotel room. The caption reads, I'd like a room for me and my uh, daughter, one with a waterbed. Hundreds of these Chester the Molester cartoons exist, and each one is sleazier and more uncomfortable than the last. He started drawing like little cartoons in the back of magazines when he was in prison. And that's how he taught himself how to draw. And then when he got out of prison, he was discovered at a a park. He had some portraits that he had drawn and created and painted. And a hustler representative came by, saw him, saw his work. They talked about it. He had a meeting with Larry Flint, and then he was discovered for the magazine. He introduced me to Chester the Molester when I was six. He was uh, working for Hustler. When I first visited him, there was magazines, Hustler magazines all over my father's house. And he would flip through them. And I saw all the pictures of me, Chester, the muster. And he told me what he was. He was a wild and funny guy. Um, that's basically how my father spun it to me. But what I saw was an old man with white hair that wore nerdy clothes and found multiple different ways to lure boys and girls to molest them. It's popular in prisons. You know, it's used in pop culture. Everybody knows that name, Chester the Molester. 13-year-old Allison loved her dad. And why wouldn't she? Dwayne was a funny, charismatic guy. Plus, he was successful. And on paper, he really sounded awesome. And after all, Chester the Molester was just a cartoon, right? In Dwayne's own words, his art was supposed to throw bricks at societal norms and provide social commentary. Dwayne even had an E.E. Cummings poem framed on his office wall. It read, let's start a magazine, to hell with literature, we want something red-blooded, reeking stark, fearlessly obscene. And even though Chester the Molester seemed gross at best and pedophilic at worst, Dwayne was serious about what his art stood for. And Hustler readers noticed that Dwayne actually gained a bit of a cult following. He was the coolest person on the planet. He was so loving and so understanding and so caring 
they took me to fancy places and fancy dinners and bought me fancy things. And he was super funny. And I was just in complete love with my father. He told me over and over and over that I was daddy's little girl. So whatever made him happy, that made me happy. So when he laughed at his own cartoons, even though I didn't fully understand it, I laughed too. And then when I got older, I started realizing that these cartoons were, you know, they were bad. I mean, but that was her whole life. I, I was surrounded by porn, and I thought it was just normal. I used to take Hustler Magazine to school, and people would, like, look at me and say, oh, there's Chester's daughter. She's so amazing because her father is Chester the Molester. It's all about perspective. Anyone who grew up surrounded by Hustler Magazine and Chester the Molester cartoons might assume that all of this was normal. Because if you don't have anything to compare it to, how would you know otherwise? And even though her father was a little strange, Allison didn't think much of it. He was very revered and respected, and that's what she saw. Because you also have to remember, Allison's father literally rescued her from an extremely abusive situation with her mother. So to her, he was not just her dad. He was the best. He saved her. He was her savior. Plus, people seemed to worship him. So life continued normally for Allison. Until one day... A 16-year-old Allison happened to hear a peer's conversation during a high school gym class. The teenage girl was confiding to one of her friends about how her uncle was molesting her. And it wasn't until I turned 16 that I realized that it was, I heard, overheard somebody in gym class talking about their uncle molested him. And I was like, ah, what's that? I didn't even know. And... They told me, and I realized it was happening to me. After Allison heard her high school classmate describe what molestation was during gym class, she realized for the first time that something was wrong about her relationship with her father. Allison had always suspected that her childhood was somehow different, and in that moment, everything clicked for her, because Dwayne Tinsley, creator of Chester the Molester, had been molesting Allison for years. It happened two to three times a week for five years. That's 780, 780 times, something like that. It it. It was truly awful. So you have to be asking yourself, how could Dwayne get away with this? How could he be creating cartoons about molesting young girls as he was doing this to his child? Who knew? Did anyone know? Were people okay with it? Why didn't we all know, given the popularity of Chester the Molester? You know the drill. To answer all of these questions, we're going back. As soon as 13-year-old Allison moved across the country to live with her father, 36-year-old Dwayne Tinsley, he began molesting her. It's heartbreaking for so many reasons. Allison trusted him. He was her father. Allison thought he was the hero of her story, saving her from a violent mother. But instead, Dwayne was just another villain. It was great for about a month. I moved to his house in Sherman Oaks, and... He worked at home. That's where his office was. And he came in my room a month after I moved in and he molested me. And then he left the room. And I was like freaking out. I was like, oh my God, what did my dad just do? I was running my fingers through my hair. I was wondering what I was going to have to do. I just came from South Carolina. I didn't want to have to go back to my mother's. And then I kind of told myself, just deny it, just deny it. And so I went into the room where he was sitting and he looked really sinister, smoking a cigarette and arched eyebrow. And he asked me a series of questions. He asked if I liked what he did. He asked if I want him to do it again. 
And I said, yes, yes, because, you know, we know what to say. And he said, because this is what fathers do who have a special love. And society would not understand what I did to you. You would have to go back to your mother's or I wouldn't love you. And basically that did it for me. He wouldn't love me. So I wouldn't have a soul in the world that didn't love me. (laughs) So I went along with it. Dude, this is just so fucking insane. Allison was faced with this impossible decision. Tell somebody and be forced to return to her abusive mother or keep quiet and pretend like everything was okay. This is so insane. She was only 13 years old. 13-year-olds should be worried about homework and making friends and liking boys and having crushes. They shouldn't be worried about their father raping them. Allison suspects that Dwayne manipulated her into moving in with him for the sole purpose of sexually abusing her. When Allison lived with her mother, she would communicate with her father in secret. And in hindsight, Allison realized that Dwayne encouraged her rebellion against her mother, planting the idea in her head that she would be much better off living with him. He was in California. And sometimes we would communicate in secret, like I would go to a friend's house and call him collect. Or the other way we we would communicate is my mother and stepfather overlooking us and listening to our phone calls. And my father developed a plan of action for him to get custody of me by me becoming rebellious. It was all of his idea. He he was basically the puppet master to me. And I executed it perfectly. Allison's father, Chester the molester himself, was molesting her constantly, and no one suspected a thing. Art was imitating life in the worst way imaginable. And of course, Allison felt incredibly alone. She couldn't talk to anyone about these traumatic experiences. Over time, she even started to blame herself for her father's sexual abuse. And she had an awful time understanding what makes a healthy sexual relationship. It ruins it. It makes you think that you just have to be a porno actress to have sex. And it destroys it. And it destroyed me. It destroyed my mind. My mind was just full of sex and porn one of the symptoms of being a sexually abused girl is promiscuity. And so I had no borders or boundaries. I mean, I was a disgusting creature. My father really messed me up. There was nobody I could talk to. And so that was very isolating and it was very lonely. I was so ashamed and full of guilt. I thought it was just all my fault. So whenever Allison would start a relationship with another guy, Dwayne became wildly jealous and angry and even more abusive. He would lash out at Allison using physical and emotional abuse to make her submit to him. Like when Allison was 16 years old, he woke her up in the middle of the night, drove her to a street corner and forced her to act as if she was a sex worker. All because Allison had the audacity to do what every normal teenager does, have a crush on a boy. Allison was under constant stress, and understandably, her mental health and self-esteem declined because of it. I was very scared of him, and so any guy that I got involved with, he got extremely jealous of. He woke me up at 2 o'clock in the morning, and he drove me to Sunset and Vine, and he said, you're living here now. You're no longer living with me because I had been with a boy. He ended up making me stand out on the street corner for like 20 minutes. And thankfully, there was nobody there. Nobody came by. I wasn't hurt, nothing. And then he finally drove by and picked me up. And then he dramatically apologized to me. And then I felt the need that I was going to kill myself. So remember, we told you that Dwayne was married at this time to his second wife, Susan. So what about her? Where does she fit in this equation in the sea of abuse? So Allison, Dwayne, and Susan all lived together. So she had to have known. You would think Susan was going to put a stop to this madness, right? Well, you'd be wrong. Susan knew Dwayne was terrorizing Allison, and she didn't do anything. She was blind. 
completely blind. There was one time my dad held a gun to my head because he said that I was a whore. I was screaming for my life in my bedroom, and it was adjacent to her bedroom. And she finally came in and said, Dwayne, go to bed. And I was screaming for my life, and she didn't even care. As a result of the constant torment and abuse, Allison was in survival mode 24-7. Unfortunately, that's normal for children suffering from sexual abuse, specifically and especially at the hands of the adults they should be able to trust more than anyone, their parents. And trusted adults sexually abusing their kids is more common than you might think. According to Rain, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, a child is sexually abused every nine minutes. In 93% of those cases, the child's abuser is a relative or an acquaintance. Like Allison, most child sex abuse victims are young girls between the ages of 12 and 17. And the CDC reports that one in four girls and one in 13 boys will experience sexual abuse. Think of a classroom of about 20 kids. Statistically, it's likely that at least two of those kids will be assaulted by an adult that they thought was safe. And sadly, these numbers are probably too low since child sex abuse is one of the most underreported crimes. The tremendous trauma created by childhood sex abuse leaves a lasting impression on the victims. Rain reports a person who was sexually abused as a child is three times more likely to experience depression, four times more likely to experience PTSD, and four times more likely to develop a drug abuse problem. And this is exactly what happened to Allison. After she realized her father was molesting her when she was in a gym class at age 16, she was furious, but completely unable to escape. Eventually, Allison turned to drugs to self-medicate her nightmare situation. I became angry, and then I realized he was using me, and then I changed my attitude towards him. It was like an, an Academy Award winner. I mean, I was just an actress. I hated it so bad, and I lived with it. He kissed me. He he had full sex with me, and and I hated every second of it, and I just dealt with it because I knew that one day I was going to be out of that situation. So I just held on to that hope. And I basically faked my life for two more years until I got addicted to cocaine. Allison was in her senior year of high school, and her only reprieve from Dwayne's abuse was the high school drama club. And that's where she began experimenting with cocaine. She was self-medicating. And what started as an occasional thing became a consistent habit. Before long, Allison's life was consumed. But that isn't a surprise given what she was looking for an escape from, is it? What I would do is I uh, hung out in drama where all the drama geeks were. And they accepted me for who I was. And I could just be myself. And I also, in an effort to get away from my father. I was in high school drama productions. I worked, you know, any hour I could get away from that house, I would, I would do. In my last year of high school, I was just at a friend's house from drama and he had cocaine and he introduced me to it. And I was instantly like, what is this? This is bad. Let's do this. And I, I got into it right then and there. I started buying it. I started getting involved with people that did it. And within a year, I was so badly addicted that you couldn't even tell who I was. Look, we can't blame her. Cocaine was probably the only thing that helped her forget about the prison of abuse that she was living in. As if things couldn't get any worse, Dwayne's best friend began molesting Allison, too. And this guy also worked at Hustler, had a wife, and had three daughters. Dwayne and his friend would go golfing, return to Dwayne's house, and drink heavily. And once Dwayne passed out, the friend would sneak into Allison's bedroom. I was also molested by another Hustler cartoonist for four years, and that was my father's best friend. I had a crush on him. And... I had, I still had no boundaries. So 
he was willing me to have an affair on him. It was like night and day. I was molested by my father during the day, and then I was molested by his best friend in the middle of the night. I realized that that man should have known that no matter what, you don't have sex with a minor married, three kids, you know, you don't do that. So given what we've learned, you have to ask, is it possible that the Hustler company culture somehow supported mistreating young women? Within its pages, Hustler magazine regularly depicted scenes of women being assaulted, mutilated, and murdered. So it's not that far-fetched to believe that Larry Flint, who built an entire porn empire based on objectifying young women, did that because he genuinely believed it was okay to objectify young women. After all, we know of at least two men who worked for Hustler and molested children. And it was revealed in court that Dwayne would often tell his coworkers, you can't write this stuff all the time if you don't experience it. And this was in reference to Chester the molester. So did Hustler's work environment validate these lecherous men? Allison seems to think so. They're validating it. They have beaver of the month, they used to have. So that would be an amateur woman would send in a picture and she was praised. Article was written about her. Her picture was shown. My father had Hustler Humor magazines where he was praised. I mean, he's like a god to people that love Chester the Molester. He's a god. It was supposed to be as disgusty and raunchy as you could possibly get without going to jail. Nothing is taboo. The, Larry Flint would say, the more taboo that you can get, the better. So they were constantly trying to outdo themselves to see, oh, bestiality with murder. That sounds good. Allison's father, Dwayne Tinsley, and Hustler founder, Larry Flint, were good friends, and they shared similar views on shocking people with sexually deviant images. Flint said that Chester the Molester was body social satire. Plus, they bonded over their troubled childhoods. Just like Dwayne, Flint came from nothing. Larry Claxton Flint Jr. was born on November 1st of 1942 to a very poor farming family. He lived in Lakeville, Kentucky, which had 40 residents, many of whom couldn't read or write. Flint described it as a medieval settlement. And just like medieval times, Flint's mother married his father when she was 14 years old. And when a journalist asked if Flint felt it harmed his mother to be sexualized so early, Flint said, no, I don't think so, not at all. Flint famously lost his virginity to a chicken at age nine. Afterwards, he killed the chicken. And he speaks about this openly and proudly when he was alive. God. Flint was also molested at gunpoint when he was 15, but as an adult, he claimed the event hadn't caused him any psychological trauma at all. In his autobiography, Flint wrote, I'm a hillbilly and people like me come to sex without all the hangups imposed by the hypocritical morality of the middle class. Already, Flint's flippant views on childhood sex abuse explain a lot about him. He dropped out of high school at age 15, and he sold liquor illegally until he was 18 years old, and then he joined the Navy. After four years in the military, Flint bought a bar in Dayton, Ohio. He took the profits from that bar and bought two more bars. Then he opened up the first Hustler strip club, and this was the beginning of Flint's Hustler dynasty. As a person, Flint was said to be defiant, outrageous, and relentless. As a businessman, Flint was considered the Shakespeare of porn. From its inception, Flint's vision for Hustler's porn was edgy and offensive. He was hated by feminists and religious officials, but adored by civil libertarians who appreciated how he challenged conservative interpretations of free speech. Larry Flint became a proponent for free speech in 1976 when he was charged with selling obscene material in Cincinnati, Ohio. The public was outraged about Hustler, and an organization called Citizens for Decent Literature was ready to crucify Flint, and they almost succeeded. Flint was sentenced to serve seven years in prison, but he ended up serving six days. There was a mistrial due to prosecutorial misconduct and judicial bias. 
Suddenly, Flint wasn't just rich from hustler success. He was famous for escaping the court's clutches as a renowned pornographer. It's a good thing and it's a bad thing. This is America and we have a lot of freedoms. We have the right to bear arms. We have the right to free speech. We can vote. We have a voice. No matter if it's loud and ugly and disgusting or quiet, if they're going to censor Larry Flint, then they might as well censor everybody else, too. What a guy. Flint's name as a defender of free speech further solidified in 1996. The Milos Forman film The People vs. Larry Flint portrayed him in a heroic, likable light. Woody Harrelson played Flint and received an Oscar nomination as a result of his performance, but not everybody was pleased with the movie. Gloria Steinem, a feminist scholar, wrote an article for the New York Times entitled What the Larry Flint Film Leaves Out. In it, she wrote, Hustler is depicted as tacky at worst and maybe even honest for showing full nudity. What's left out are the magazine's images of women being beaten, tortured, and raped, women subject to degradations from bestiality to sexual slavery. Other images left out of the movie included Hustler's depiction of women being burned and dismembered, forced into concentration camps for being prudes, crawling on dog leashes, crucified on crosses, bagged and bound like deer to luggage racks, and so much more. And with these images circulating in Flint's mind, Chester the Molester probably seemed pretty tame. Right. In February of 2021, Larry Flint died from heart failure at 78 years old. In one of Flint's final interviews, a journalist for The Independent met Flint in his home. And Flint was promoting his new book, One Nation Under Sex, which chronicles the history of our president's sex lives. Flint told a reporter that he was certain Barack Obama would never cheat on Michelle. Flint said, you ever looked at her? If he ever cheated on her, she'd kick his ass. You know that they may be black, but they've got a very stable family. As Flint's racist and sexist views became more and more apparent throughout this interview, Flint became upset that the journalist wasn't supporting him. Flint told the journalist that he could tell the article was going to take the feminist side. Over the course of Flint's life, he had five marriages, five children, and a ton of grandkids. Allison's father, Dwayne, once told reporters, if you really want to know Larry Flint, you need to see him around his children. My kids call him Uncle Larry. They just love him. And Allison did know some of Flint's children, including his oldest daughter, Tanya Flint. And in 1998, Tanya published a memoir entitled Hustled, My Journey from Fear to Faith, where she exposed her father, Larry Flint, for molesting her. According to Tanya, she was nine years old when her father, Larry Flint, started showing her the Chester the Molester cartoons. And he began explaining what little girls do with their fathers as he groped her. Chester the Molester had been integral to Flint's molesting of Tanya, just as it had been when Dwayne molested Allison. We used to hang out. We weren't like close friends, but we would hang out together. And... You know, the whole family is nutcakes. I mean, but so is, so is mine. <laughs> but when I read her story, I was like, wow, this is crazy. I can't believe that he was poor too. And she got molested too. And, it, and it's all from Hustler. The common denominator does seem to be Hustler magazine, doesn't it? It's fucking creepy. In the late 1980s, Dwayne was flourishing at Hustler. In addition to creating the widely lauded Chester the Molester cartoon, Flint promoted Dwayne to be Hustler's humor editor. By all accounts, Dwayne was doing super well, but of course his 18-year-old daughter, who he'd raped for five years, was not. Allison was in the trenches of her cocaine addiction. And out of options, she went to Dwayne for help, but when he made a sexual advance, things went downhill. When I visited him, I was tired. I was 99 pounds. My hair was falling out. And I was sitting at the dining room table. And he started to tell me, you know, you should get off the cocaine or it's killing you. And then he said, here, come sit on my lap. And so I sat on his lap, and then he went to kiss me, and something snapped, 
where I was like not going to kiss him ever again, that it was like the most disgusting thing ever. And I had it. And I told him to don't touch me ever again. And then he said, get the fuck out of the house. My wife is five months pregnant and we need the room. So right then and there, he just tossed me like a piece of meat. And so then I had nowhere to go. I called my mother. She was like, why should I help you? So I was standing out front of a liquor store and I was begging for change. Well, what I really wanted was a cigarette. And from the liquor store comes these three Mexicans that had cowboy hats on. And I asked them for change. And they they asked me if I was all right. And they said, here, why don't you come stay with us? And we will take care of you. I said, I just need help until let's just say Monday, because that was when I was going to go to um, rehab. And I was in a really bad area. And I followed these men and they took me to a really rundown apartment. And it was only a one bedroom apartment. And there was like eight other men that were sitting on the floor around the wall because there was hardly any furniture. And they took care of me. They fed me. They gave me drink. They they took care of me. They didn't touch me. Nothing. Isn't that amazing? Later, Allison went to her job at a coffee shop. She was shaken. She was upset. And she was not fucking okay. I mean, would you be? So initially, she tried to fake an emergency to get out of work, but her supervisor clearly picked up on the fact that something was wrong. He could tell Allison wasn't herself and wasn't okay, so he pulled her aside, and that small gesture would change Allison's life forever. I worked at a coffee shop, and I had cocaine in my shoe, a vial of coke in my shoe, and all I wanted to do was go home and use, and I said to my... um manager. I said, my mother, she died of a heart attack. I've got to go home. And he took me to the office where I was in the presence of the owner. And he was this big man. And all he said was, Allison, what's wrong with you? And five years of sick secret came tumbling out and I told him everything and he happened to be a detective an ex-detective from the sex crimes unit in Simi Valley where we lived at the time so then he contacted a detective and that's how we did the the cool call is it what it's called And my whole job was to get my father to admit what he did on the phone. Allison told the police everything, that her father raped her approximately three times a week from age 13 to 18, showed her pornography, and put her on birth control pills, and how Dwayne had emotionally manipulated young Allison, saying she couldn't tell anyone about their little secret. During the call that Allison was recording, trying to capture this for police, Dwayne didn't exactly admit that he'd molested her, but he was saying things like, I don't want to talk about this. But he didn't deny her allegations either. And the listening police officers thought that was very suspicious. So on the afternoon of May 18th, 1989, officers waited for 90 minutes outside Dwayne's home in Simi Valley, about 40 miles northwest of L.A., As soon as Dwayne exited his house in his black Mustang, police pulled him over and arrested him. The now 43-year-old Dwayne had been charged with felony incest, child molestation, sodomy, rape, and oral copulation. Immediately, Dwayne denied everything. He claimed Allison was vindictive and cocaine-addicted and extorting him for a car, money, and a place to stay. He was reaching for any excuse in the book. According to him... This was all some elaborate scheme because Allison was angry that he wanted her to get help with her drug abuse. Drug abuse that he caused, frankly. 
So Dwayne's trial took place in December of 1989, which was a unique time for the United States. The satanic panic was in full swing. So conspiracy theories about satanic cults committing torturous murders during ritual practices were really running rampant. And we're going to be really clear here. There were no satanic cults. There were no ritual practices and no evidence to support any of these theories, but it really didn't matter. Between the media's sensationalized response and politicians using the panic as a platform to gain votes, the average person truly believed that cloaked Satan worshipers were painting goat blood stars in their basements. And in the late 80s, a new and more legitimate layer was added to the satanic panic, child sex abuse hysteria. And some of the outrage about child sex abuse was well-founded. For example, around this time, a Catholic priest admitted to raping and sexually abusing 37 little boys. And we all know that other priests came forward later. Right. But some of the outrage was complete nonsense, specifically the McMartin preschool trial, which combined the public's satanic panic and child sex abuse hysteria together in some hybrid of panic. Nursery school teachers in L.A. were accused of performing satanic rituals in which they supposedly molested children. And there was no evidence to support any of these claims. But by the time it was all said and done, the McMartin preschool trial had become the longest and costliest criminal trial in history. In U.S. history, let me let me clarify. It took six years, and taxpayers contributed more than $15 million to the case. By 1990, all the charges were dropped. So you would think, with all of this discussion about child molestation, that Dwayne would have faced serious consequences for molesting Allison, right? But you would be wrong. Dwayne was charged with 16 counts of unlawful sexual activity with Allison, and he continued to deny all of them, saying that Allison was motivated by revenge, anger, and jealousy. But the evidence showed otherwise, including one note written years ago by Dwayne's wife, Susan. In the note, Susan said that Dwayne admitted to having sex with preteen Allison, but he accused Allison, a literal child, of initiating it. And during the trial, Dwayne even openly admitted to falling asleep in Allison's bed while he was drunk and staying there once he realized that he wasn't clothed. To Dwayne, this wasn't sexual abuse. But a fun fact, it fucking is. It really fucking is. I mean, it's well, fucking... This This story just like makes my blood fucking boil at every turn. The whole thing makes me so angry and makes me just revere Allison even more for just... You know her strength. I know. So Allison's lawyers showed the jury over 3,200 of Dwayne's comics as evidence, and many of which were Chester the Molester strips that depicted the very molestation that Dwayne had inflicted on Allison. Dwayne's defense team tried to paint Allison as a sexually promiscuous drug addled liar. And they even insinuated that she was mixing up her father with other men who had raped her. This is all so fucking disgusting. In January of 1990, after five days of deliberation, the jury found Dwayne guilty of five counts of sexual abuse. He was acquitted of six. The remaining five counts were deadlocked, which means that they couldn't agree on the verdict. So Dwayne could have received 16 years in prison, but the judge said he didn't believe Dwayne was a danger to his other two daughters, who were Allison's half-sisters. That's a very interesting observation, judge. The judge said, out of consideration for Dwayne's family— he was only sentencing him to six years in prison. I'm telling you, man, sometimes you see this shit and you're just like, this is why people hate men. <laughs> I don't. I like some men, but like that is insane. It's insane. That he'd be like, oh, we got to get this guy back home to his other two kids, you know? Because he's because he's just such a good dad. <laughs> he's a good dad. And he, yeah, he's there. He's going to be a positive influence on their lives. Yeah, for he sure. doesn't have any history of anything bad whatsoever. Just totally. like a shining star. That's right. But it gets worse. So in 1992, a different judge released Dwayne Tinsley because he thought the jury shouldn't have been able to consider Dwayne's comics as far as the conviction. He believed that it had unfairly biased the jury. So after his conviction, his attorney appealed, right? And it was on this basis that the Chester the Molester cartoons, which depicted acts he had done to Allison and vice versa. That he created himself. That he created himself and had done several of these scenarios to Allison. They weren't relevant and it unfairly prejudiced the jury, which is what the hell? crazy, right? So now what we're dealing with here, the very cartoons that damned Dwayne and convicted him were now his saving grace. Dwayne left prison and went home to his two other daughters and didn't even have to register as a sex offender. And while he'd been in prison, mind you, 
He had continued working for Flint. He was drawing the cartoons behind bars for Hustler magazine. And when Dwayne left prison, he returned immediately to his full-time position at Hustler. I just, I'm speechless. It it sounds like a fake story. It sounds like a, it sounds like a joke, but it really happened. And when I was growing up, people would like say Chester the Molester about someone being creepy. And there's a person behind that. And I didn't know that. And I think everyone will be blown away to learn that Allison is the victim of Chester the Molester. Like, and it's, it's in the zeitgeist. People talk about it and throw that phrase around still, but it's, it's important that people know. Yeah. I mean, everybody knows and has heard somebody been called that before. And just, it does, like you said, it does just live in the zeitgeist of the United States. It's fucking crazy. Definitely. So around the time of her father's trial, Allison went to rehab. So she was able to shake her cocaine addiction and that's amazing. But there is no question that she was robbed so badly of the justice that she so deserved. And one of the many reasons that Allison pursued charging her father was because of her younger half-sisters. She didn't want them to be molested by her father like she had been. I was on a war path to protect my sisters. It may have happened to me, but I'd be damned if it was going to happen to them. And I didn't get justice, but I got a, a little nugget. When I spoke to my sister years ago, she told me that when they became teenagers, my father kicked them out of the house to go live with their mother, saying girls should not live with their fathers at this age. So that tells me that he at least learned his lesson and they were not molested. Allison wasn't willing to take her father to court again. The first trial caused her, as I'm sure you can all imagine, extreme emotional distress. And Duane had already caused her a lifetime of psychological damage. But when Allison realized that she was pregnant, she decided that she would be damned if she let this cycle of emotional and physical abuse continue. So she took action in other ways. I was a mess. I mean, I had no tools for living. And I depended on these men to take care of me. My father made it his mission that I would not be able to have a complete thought, a responsible bone in my body apart from him. So when I got kicked out and suddenly he's taken from underneath my feet, I don't know how to think for myself. I don't know how to survive. The only thing that kicked in for me is the uh, the will to live. And I call it flailing forward. <laughs> it's that I would do one step forward and 10 steps back. I was drug addicted. I had alcoholism. I was codependent. And then I would try to do it on my own strength. I would try not to be codependent. And I'm so codependent in a relationship that I'm fighting, fighting, fighting with my husband. He's fighting with me. We break up and I'm like, okay, well, how am I going to be better now? I don't want to ever go through this again. So I'm going to not be codependent. And What that looks like is all sorts of work. I started trying to think for myself and so on and so on. And then I had children. I was pregnant with my daughter in 1991. I wasn't very religious, but I was scared to death to have a baby. And my girlfriend, she instructed me and said that I was going to love that baby. And I want you to pray every day for you to be a mother. And so I did. I prayed that she would be a girl and that she would be beautiful. And then I know this sounds crazy, but one day I heard a male voice say to me, break that thing. 
And I thought about what that means. What does that mean? It means that all the generations of my mother and my father, that I was meant to break the chain. My daughter is now 30, and she's never been molested. She's never been beaten. My son has never been molested, never beaten. I broke that chain. And so now I have grandsons, and they have a life. Something happened inside me that I was awakened, and I was able to accept my faith. And with my faith was the catapult for me to write the book because I began realizing that I was undergoing healing. I was alive. I mean, I shouldn't be alive. I shouldn't be able to string some sentences together. And, and I own a, I own two businesses. So I realized that I needed to help the survivor. So it took me 13 years to write this book. And through the book, I was able to experience what I call being unchained. And that's why the book is called Allison Unchained. And in a display of tremendous strength, Allison used all of her pain and suffering to become an advocate, a speaker, and an author. Her book is entitled Allison Unchained, A Woman's Quest to Find Love, Faith, and Forgiveness. And her website is allisonunchained.com. And throughout all of her hard work, Allison has come to forgive Dwayne. And more importantly, she's been able to forgive herself. Right. And we want to congratulate Allison. Her book was published. You know the terms, Jack. You're a two-time author now. Pub date? Pub date. Pub date was October 31st of 2022. You can get Allison's book at allisonunchained.com. You can also get it on Amazon, which is where I get everything. I already have my book. I started it. It's incredible. All of you should read Allison's book. This woman is the most triumphant, most insightful, forgiving person I've ever met. And given what she's been through, I think we all have a lot we can learn. Absolutely. And it is the best, best way that you can support her through this is buying her book and posting it about it on social media and letting other people know her story, because this is a story that we had no idea about. And you just kind of hear about the name and you had no idea that there is like a tremendous, painful story behind it. So please go buy her book. Yes. The hardest thing was to forgive myself. That took every ounce of strength was able to forgive myself because I hated myself so badly for not saying anything, for not telling anybody, for not getting out of that situation. You know, it was all my fault. And that's how I thought. So... It wasn't until the around the end of the book that I was able to finally forgive myself and say, hey, girl, you're pretty good. You're a business owner. Look at you. You're a mom and they love you. And then when I finally forgave myself, you know, the guilt, the shame, the hating him and the you know, all the bad things that you carry around as a result of hating somebody. It wasn't until that, that I was able to finally say, I have forgiven him. I mean, he's a monster and I have not forgotten what he's done. And I hate sexual abuse, but I don't want to be in pain. When I think about him, I can think about good things. I don't think about the bad things, and it took all my strength, but I had forgiven him. On May 22nd of the year 2000, 55-year-old Dwayne Tinsley died of a heart failure. He continued creating Chester the Monster cartoons for Hustler until the day he died. Before Hustler creator Larry Flint died in 2021, he told The Independent that Dwayne Tinsley was a genius. He was at one time in America the most brilliant and recognized cartoon artist in America. 
I liked him. He was an old country boy. I'm like, cool. Idiots. When the Independence journalist pointed out that Dwayne was only released from prison on a technicality, but he had certainly sexually abused his daughter for years, Flint said, I never got involved in that because I never knew what the circumstances were, so I don't really have a comment on them. Doesn't it all reconcile with the person that I knew? I don't know. It may very well have happened. I wasn't involved. So let this sink in. Flint could have not imagined that the creator of Chester the Molester was indeed molesting little girls. Wow. So over the years, Hustler subscriptions had declined significantly. In the 80s, more than 3 million copies circulated each month. And today, less than half a million copies are sent out and the number continues to dwindle. And if God forbid anybody out there has a Hustler subscription, it's now your time to fucking cancel. Or if you have a Hustler story, please let me know. Because I am so fascinated with my lack of understanding of this up until this point that I really want to know more. So anybody has a hustler story of your own, please, please reach out. French philosopher Voltaire once said, I may not agree with what you have to say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Many people did not agree with what Hustler had to say. From misogynistic images of violence against women to cartoon of an old man named Chester the Molester molesting little girls. It makes sense why this magazine was so controversial. The United States Constitution, First Amendment, protects its citizens' right to free speech. The government cannot make any laws restricting what Americans say unless it directly harms others, like yelling fire in a crowded theater. But as you might imagine, each person's interpretation of what could harm others varies. It's perfectly legal to say things that are sexist, racist, ableist, homophobic, transphobic, and more. It's perfectly legal to be a terrible fucking person. But even if it's legal, what does it say about the people who support those voices, who buy that content, and who capitalize on the pain of others? Allison has forgiven her father for abusing her while hiding in plain sight behind his Chester the Molester cartoon. But can we forgive those at Hustler who provided Chester the Molester a platform, who held up those pedophilic cartoons and told millions of readers they were acceptable? Think carefully about the organizations you support and what you may be supporting by association. Because ultimately, that's how we decide which voices are heard. Well, huge thank you to Allison for being our first degree guest today. Your story is so incredible and thank you for your vulnerability for sharing it with us if you are out there and you have a story to tell especially other hustler stories like alexis said please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com you can follow us on instagram join our facebook group we're talking true crime all the time join our patreon we have lots of bonus content for you over there and stick around tomorrow because we'll have a brand new episode of killing time right in your feed right what jack said allison we love you we support you we're all buying your book. We're going to promote the heck out of it. Yes. And thank you all for listening. I hope you absorbed this because this was a, one of our most important episodes for sure. Absolutely. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close. But not that close. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland. Incredible writing in today's episode by Andrea Marshbank. Really, really great job. Sources for this episode are Hustled, Hustler, Newspapers.com, Most Outrageous, American Super Realism, Timeline, The New York Times, AP News, LA Times, Los Angeles Daily News, The Signal, Santa Cruz Sentinel, Comic Book Bin, Corpus Christi Times, The Valley Independent, The Atlanta Constitution, The Sydney Morning Herald, Time Magazine, U.S. Department of Justice, Ancestry, Find a Grave, The Independent, Esquire, The Napa Valley Register, The Sacramento Bee, The Californian, The Tri-City Herald, The Modesto Bee, The Tribune, Rain, and the CDC. And as always, our first three guests is always our largest source.